Welcome to UpToDate Talk. I'm Dr. Sadna Vora, an oncologist and deputy editor at UpToDate. Today we're talking about the new guidelines from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP, regarding the herpes zoster vaccines. Dr. Ken Schmader, primary care section editor and editor-in-chief of the geriatric section at UpToDate, is joining us. He is a professor of medicine and chief of the division of geriatrics at Duke. Welcome, Dr. Schmader. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, by way of background, we know that shingles is caused by the varicella zoster virus. Dr. Schmader, who is most vulnerable to getting zoster and what is the scope of the problem? Now, older persons and individuals with immunocompromising conditions are the most vulnerable. And the reason for that is after primary infection, varicella zoster virus, or VZV, establishes a latent infection in uh, dorsal root or cranial nerve ganglia. But it doesn't just sit there quietly. It periodically tries to reactivate. However, it's our cellular immune system that contains it. And with aging-related declines in immunity, so-called immune senescence, or immunosuppressive diseases or drugs, the VZV can escape immune containment and spread in the ganglia down the sensory nerve of the skin, causing zoster. There's about a million cases of zoster each year in the United States, and the lifetime risk is 30%. And what are some of the health effects, both short-term and long-term, of getting zoster? Well, pain is the name of the game in zoster. I mean, the most feared health effect is pain, and both acute or, and chronic pain or post neuralgia, both of which can be very severe. Uh, clinicians that have seen individuals with post neuralgia know that it can last for months to years and quite difficult to manage. This pain, both acute and chronically, can have major impact on quality of life, uh, fatigue, insomnia, depression, uh, social problems like difficulty socializing, getting out of the house, and functional impairment and basic and instrumental ADLs. There are other important complications too, though. It includes ophthalmic zoster with visual impairment, and individuals with ophthalmic zoster are at risk for stroke. Uh, neurological problems like transverse myelitis or motor neuropathies, and particularly in immunocompromised patients, widespread dissemination of the virus and, and visceral involvement. So some potentially very serious health effects. What types of vaccines exist to prevent zoster? Well, it's an exciting time now. We actually have two vaccines for the prevention of zoster. There's the live attenuated zoster vaccine and what's called the recombinant zoster vaccine. The live attenuated vaccine contains whole live virus and, and viral antigens, and it can replicate in its weakened state to stimulate the immune response, and it's given as one dose. The new recombinant vaccine is the polar opposite. It is one protein from the lipoprotein envelope of the virus, of varicella zoster virus. That protein's called glycoprotein E, and it's combined with an adjuvant system. It's called AS01B. It actually contains two adjuvants to boost the immune response. Adjuvants are substances that potentiate the immune response. And interestingly, it's given in two doses. So I understand that there were some changes that the ACIP made in regards to their recommendations for the Zoster vaccine. Can you explain these changes and the rationale for them? Yeah, absolutely. The ACIP basically made three new specific recommendations with regard to the Zoster vaccine. One is this uh, new recombinant zoster vaccine is recommended for the prevention of herpes zoster in immunocompetent adults 50 years and older, and that was based on clinical trial data perhaps we can talk about. I want to point out that the FDA also approved it uh, a week before the ACIP made the recommendations in October 2017, and the FDA language is that the vaccine is licensed for the prevention of herpes zoster in adults over 50. They do not put the immunocompetent language in there. But the ACIP, in reviewing the evidence, thought it should be for immunocompetent individuals. They also recommended it for immunocompetent adults who previously received the live zoster vaccine. 
And interestingly, the third recommendation was a preferential recommendation. That is, they said that the recombinant zoster vaccine is preferred over the live zoster vaccine for the prevention of herpes zoster. And that is not typical for the ACIP. They usually do not make preferential recommendations. I see. So that sounds like a big change. Why is the recombinant vaccine now preferred? Yeah, there are two large phase three randomized placebo-controlled trials in older adults that uh, form the basis for that preferential recommendation. One was in people over the age of 50. It's called Zoster Efficacy or ZOE50 trial. And they gave two doses of the vaccine, the recombinant vaccine, a dose at baseline and a dose two months later. And the vaccine efficacy was 97%. In other words, it reduced the risk of developing zoster by 97% over an approximate three-year period. And that is an amazing result for an adult vaccine. That's typical for pediatric vaccines. And in that trial, there were no cases of post-epidic neuralgia. The other study was in people over the age of 70. Uh, so-called ZOE70 or Zoster Efficacy 70, again, a two-dose regimen, and here the vaccine efficacy was 90%, so it reduced the risk of developing Zoster by 90% over that three-year period. Again, an amazing result in very older individuals. Uh, There were a few cases of PHN in that trial, but the vaccine efficacy against PHN was 89%. PHN being post-herpetic neuralgia. Yes, thank you. Oh, I should say as a comparison, the live Zoster vaccine efficacy was 70% in 50 to 59-year-olds, 64% 64% in 60 to 69-year-olds, 37% in 70 and above, but it was 66% against post-epidic neuralgia against all age groups. So it's still a useful vaccine, but clearly the recombinant zoster vaccine results were better. I see. So with the recombinant, we're seeing efficacy rates of over 90%, and that's compared to um, the live vaccine being more like in the 60 to 70% range. Is that right? That's right. Okay, and they've never been compared head-to-head. Both of these trials, ZOE70 and ZOE50, they were using the uh, recombinant vaccine compared to placebo. Is that correct also? That's correct. They've never been a head-to-head trial. I'd love to see one, although no, I don't know if anyone's planning it. <laughs> sure. Now, are there any disadvantages or side effects associated with a recombinant vaccination? Yes, there's uh, local injection site reactions and systemic reactions, some reactogenicity associated with it. I do want to point out that there were no differences in serious adverse events, uh, immune-mediated diseases, or death between the vaccine and placebo group in those trials. But regarding injection site reactions, the most common side effect after recombinant zoster vaccine administration is pain at the injection site. About 78% of subjects had that, although most of the injection sites reactions have been mild to moderate. However, Grade three reactions, those are defined as reactions that prevented normal everyday activities, did occur in uh, 9.4% of vaccine recipients in the 50 and above trial and 8.5% in uh, 70 and above. How does that compare with the live vaccine in terms of side effects? Injection site reactions are much less frequent. The live zoster vaccine, uh, about 48% of individuals would get that. And then systemic reactions are very important, too. With the recombinant zoster vaccine, the most common systemic reactions were uh, myalgias, 45%, fatigue, uh, 45%, headaches, and about 38%. Some individuals would develop shivering after it, 27%, low-grade fever, 21%, and gastrointestinal symptoms, about 17%. But what's really important are those grade three reactions. And those grade three reactions that prevented normal every activities were reported in about 10.8% of vaccine recipients in 50 and above and 6% in 70 and above. Yeah, it's important to point out that actually the reactogenicity was less the older you got, interestingly enough. 
So, so those systemic side effects and those grade three side effects, they're uncommon, sounds like. It's uh, the majority of patients getting the recombinant vaccine are not going to get those kinds of side effects. Is that correct? Yes, the majority of people have mild to moderate effects, but it is important to realize that there is a you know small subset of people that can have some significant reactionicity, and it's really important to counsel patients ahead of time about these potential effects before they get vaccinated. And, and I should point out these reactions, the grade three reactions lasted somewhere between one to three days. You know, they're a heck of a lot less than shingles pain. Of course. Now, after you've counseled the patient, what happens when somebody says, hey, even though it's a small chance that this is going to happen, I don't want to take that risk. How do you counsel that patient or how do you advise that that patient be treated? Would you offer them the live vaccine or is that uh, inappropriate at this point? Yeah, I think it's important to go back and review the risks and benefits of the recombinant zoster vaccine so they understand everything completely. And then after that, if they feel like I, I don't want to take the recombinant zoster vaccine, then yes, I would definitely offer them the live zoster vaccine. And uh, how about somebody who's already received the live vaccine? How do you treat that patient? Yes, because of waning immunity to the live zoster vaccine, it's a, it's a good idea to get a booster with the recombinant zoster vaccine. There are studies now showing that the recombinant zoster vaccine is safe and immunogenic in persons who've been vaccinated with the zoster vaccine, uh, the live zoster vaccine five years earlier. And really there's no reason to think an earlier interval won't be safe or immunogenic as well. And I have to say the group of people who want a zoster vaccine the most are individuals who've uh, either had the live zoster vaccine or worried about getting it again, or people who've had prior herpes zoster. Oh, I see. So, of course, uh, those patients are going to be the most concerned because they've already experienced it before. That's right. And it's fine to go ahead and give them the recombinant vaccine. It's safe to do so. Is that right? It is. Absolutely. Now, you touched on the issue of waning immunity. Can you explain that a little bit more? And uh, in particular, how does it relate to this new vaccine, the recombinant vaccine? Yeah, the data we have on waning immunity is to the live zoster vaccine in immunocompetent persons. Uh, and it looks like about somewhere between five to eight years, the immunity wanes significantly to the point where it's no longer effective and you need a booster dose. We do not have data beyond three to four years in, in the recombinant zoster vaccine for vaccine efficacy. So this is going to be studied, uh, obviously, intensely over the next few years. And are there any groups or any patients in whom you would not use the recombinant vaccine given available data. And in particular, as an oncologist, I want to know, how do you treat immunocompromised patients, for example? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. I do want to point out the only contraindication is a history of a severe allergic reaction like anaphylaxis to the recombinant zoster vaccine. That's it. But uh, the use of recombinant zoster vaccine immunocompromised populations. It is under study. There are studies going on in HIV-infected individuals, in uh, stem cell transplant uh, patients, and also in renal transplant recipients. And it's very much the focus of active discussion on the Zoster workgroup, the ICAP, of which I'm a member. So there's some pros and cons here. The, the potential caution is that immunosuppressive treatments may affect the effectiveness of the vaccine. And also the safety of using this potent immunogenic adjuvant is unknown, uh, especially in groups where there might be concerns such as hematologic malignancies or immune-mediated diseases. However, immune-compromised individuals are at really high risk for zoster and its complications, and, and the vaccine might be quite effective, and I, my sense is it's probably going to be safe in many individuals. So what's happened right now, interestingly, like I mentioned, it's not off-label prescribing by the FDA if you give it to an immunocompromised individual. And if you look at the 2018 ACIP guidelines for special populations, 
for under the column immunocompromised individuals, there's just a blank there. It's neither recommended or contraindicated in the schedule for immunocompromised persons. So I think there's going to be a lot of case-by-case weighing of risks and benefits with those individuals. I see. So we can look forward to more data in those populations in the future. Yes. Okay. Any other future directions or or new data that we can um, anticipate in regards to zoster prevention? Yeah, I think there's going to be more data and recommendations, not just for immunocompromised, but the safety monitoring for serious adverse events and immune-mediated diseases will be going on for the next several years. Uh, the CDC has a program that is uh, monitoring the safety, and a, a part of that it's called the Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment Office. There are a couple other things that are really important. This is a two-dose regimen. You give a dose at baseline and a second dose anytime between two to six months later. So it's really important for health systems to have a system in place to monitor the adherence and, and getting that second dose. The other thing I want to point out is that this vaccine is given intramuscularly, not subcutaneously like the live zoster vaccine. And we've already had several reports of the recombinant zoster vaccine given subcutaneously in error. So that's an important thing to get right. I see. So clinicians really have to be aware of administration schedules and how to administer it in order for it to be most effective. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Ken Schmader, thank you so much for providing us with your insights, and uh, we really appreciate your help. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you would like to get more information about this study or other recent updates, please visit UpToDate.com and look at our What's New and Practice Changing Updates sections. We welcome your feedback. Please leave us a review on the podcast service you use to access these podcasts.